I've seen very miserable people who are have gobs of money. I've seen very happy people who have no money at all. It's not about money. It's not about status. It's not about sex. It's not about religion. It's about what is the lens that you have on your life. Welcome to the Natural Curiosity Project, the place for stories that matter. I'm Steve Shepard. I have a singularly special episode for you today, and to introduce it, I have to share a little bit of background. The man whose voice you just heard is DeWitt Jones. If you don't know who he is, don't worry, we'll get around to that in a minute. Back around 2007 or so, one of my customers asked me to be one of several keynote speakers at a big annual sales event they were holding. Thankfully, it worked with my schedule because DeWitt was also keynoting the event, and I got to hear him speak. I didn't know DeWitt, but it turned out that I knew his work. Boy, did I know his work. DeWitt photographed for National Geographic for 20 years. He shot some of my favorite stories, and as I listened to his presentation, I was captivated by his message that the world is filled with possibility and that we should go out of our way to celebrate what's right with it rather than wallow in what's wrong. As you know, I've delivered keynotes all over the world throughout my career, and because of that, I've also had the opportunity to hear hundreds of keynotes delivered by other speakers. But DeWitt's was different. I know this because, unlike any other speech I had ever heard, it filled me with a sense of possibility that, I'm not embarrassed to say, literally made me cry. His film, Celebrate What's Right with the World, is a testament to his life's work, and to the philosophy by which he lives his life. Throughout his career as a National Geographic photographer, regardless of the subject matter of the story, DeWitt always went out of his way to do one thing really well, to see the best that people had to offer, and to give them through his images the opportunity to demonstrate it, to tell their story. Not long ago, I asked DeWitt if he would join me on the program, and he graciously accepted We hopped on a Zoom call, I in my office in snowy Vermont, DeWitt at his home on the Hawaiian island of Molokai. His windows were open, the birds were singing, and for about two hours, we just talked. This is our conversation. DeWitt's wisdom is a gift to us all. Please really, really listen to what he has to say. Steve, luckily, I'm old enough to be able to look back now. And I've also had a couple of times in my life when I've been able to reassess as I went along just because of what I was doing. But I do see a tapestry and it, and it's always been more important for me to say, what did I learn from an experience than that, that I had it? Okay. I had it. Did I learn anything from it? Did I grow from it? And looking back, my philosophy, I think started when I was about 12. I was sent to a, canoe camp in Canada, which was quite long, eight weeks they sent me, and I didn't want to come home. I grew up in a suburb outside Chicago. I loved it, but there was no nature component to it. And I got in a canoe and started paddling through the Quetico National Park, and I was gone. I was just lost in the beauty of it. I liked the canoes. I liked the camaraderie. But it was the first time I had been in nature and beauty and nature got connected way down deep in me in that. And 
I'm not a scientist. I was minorly interested in how the fish worked and what trees they were and what clouds they were. But basically, it was being in the wonder of it. And that gets important later on as, as my life unfolds. But those were the first two things. And those changed the, my whole direction during high school and early college to want to spend more and more time outside in nature and feeling that sense of wonder and awe and something larger than yourself. So that's the first thread. <laughs> you know, you're, you're one of those people that I like to describe as having had a, a very nonlinear career in the sense that you have so many interests and so many passions that have come together into this amazing tapestry, as you call it. I think it's really fascinating that, you know, you are a, and I think one of the few times I've actually used this phrase, but you are truly a world-renowned National Geographic photographer for many years. You shot for them. I actually knew your work before I knew who you were because I had seen many of your photographs. And then when I saw the film, I said, wait a minute, I know that cover. I know that cover. I know that cover. And it turned out, of course, to be your work. You come across, at least on the surface, many times as a gifted photographer of people living their lives. You're great at that. But you're a really great nature photographer, too. So this whole thing of nature and beauty and and being outside kind of came together, I think, in a way that led you into this observation about possibilities, about what is possible out there. Because we focus so much on the negative oftentimes. We know what we can't do. I'm not even going to try. But we don't focus on what we could do. You never allowed yourself to be pigeonholed into a box. It's not DeWitt the photographer or DeWitt the writer or DeWitt the observer. It's DeWitt Jones who has this message about possibility. Tell me about that. Well, I did grow up in a family that was very positive toward me. Both my mom and my dad told me I had potential. You know, I mean, I didn't grow up where I was in a family that beat me down, but that was at a a level that most of my peers were. I mean, I, I didn't have anything special tremendously with that, except that there wasn't much negative. And I went to college, didn't know what I wanted to do when I got out, applied to Harvard Business School because I had the grades and the smarts, and that was sort of what you did, right? How cool with that? My father was ecstatic when I got in. But then one night, Three of us got together and began to just ask, what would we want to do after college if we could do anything we wanted? And I had no reservations about at least dreaming. And we came up with this idea of kayaking 1,100 miles up the coast of Japan on a people-to-people expedition and selling it to the geographic. Two things happened. We were able to do that, which allowed me to say, my God, you can dream. And you don't always get your dreams, but there's more than one right answer, right? I had one answer. I'm going to go to Harvard. Good answer. I'm sure I would have lived a fine life, but I made this other thing happen. And the, the life lesson that came out of that was there's more than one right answer. And we are trained in our school system to believe there's one right answer. 2,200 multiple choice tests by the time we graduate from college all of which have one right answer. And then they say, think outside the box. And you go, no, no way. I tried that. I got an F. No, no. I want to think inside the box. But, you know, here we were, four college kids saying, hey, 
we're going to paddle up the coast of Japan in kayaks and sell the story to the National Geographic. And we did it. Why? How it all worked out? I don't know. We had talent. We had perseverance. All of those things. We had luck. But somehow it all came together. I didn't really realize until I began to speak about it and teach about it how important believing that there's more than one right answer is to creativity, is to being able to think outside the box, being able to be positive in the world when things are negative, and how damning it is to believe there's only one right answer. And a tremendous amount of our society pushes us into that. Whereas anybody that's creative is constant. I mean, I threw thousands of pictures to get one. I don't care. What did I learn from that one? How can I go to the next one? Maybe I could go over here. Maybe I could go over there. It's much more fluid. So I was able to parlay that movie into a still assignment for the geographic. And that was much more aligned with me. I'm I'm more of a loner than a team player. And they would give me an assignment and a whole bunch of film and say, Madagascar, it's that way. You know, it was just amazing. Let me go. And a lot of people would blow up under that kind of pressure. I thrived under it. And the thing that I began to see, because I would go into places armed with the fact that I had a camera bag and a letter in my pocket that I worked for National Geographic, and people would just open up to me. And I'm going, what is going on? You know, come stay in my house, hang out with my family. Sure, I'll take you up the mountain or whatever it was. And I'm going, what's going on? And then I realized that, you know, from the time I was a kid, my family, like every other family in our community, saved the National Geographics. You couldn't throw them away. Why? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized it was because they celebrate what's right with the world. That's not over the doorway of the geographic, but it's embedded in their philosophy that I knew that I didn't work for the National Enquirer. So when I went out to shoot, I was going to tell the best of every situation. I was not going to not look at what was wrong, but I was going to make sure that I told the best of it. And so people just knew that if I photographed them, I wouldn't make them look stupid. I'd make them look the best that they could be. And that's why we kept it. And so it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, I'd go out after a while. People would say, what's your favorite assignment? I said, I don't care. Just send me. Because I know that wherever I go, it's going to be there. Why? Because there's more than one right answer. And because I'm out there celebrating what's right with the world. And, you know, there's a another message in the film that that I absolutely love and I, I want to just kind of follow up with it. And in the film, one of the things you say is we tend to approach every problem with this message that says, when I see it, I'll believe it. And you flip that on its head and you say, no, 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 no. I'll see it when I believe it. How does that play? I mean, that that's a very powerful construct to me. It's a really interesting message. Well, the first one is true. I won't believe it till I see it. You know, there are many things that we are told in life and we go, I don't believe that. And the guy says, well, here it is. You go, okay, I do believe it. But we also construct a lens with which we view the world. And the way that lens is ground determines how we see the world. If we think the world is a frightening place, 
we will see frightening things. You know that that's true. If we just bought a new red Mercedes, we will find red Mercedes on the freeway. You know, we will bring those to us. So we have a lens that will bring us to our beliefs. And when they're really stuck, you know, you know, people who cannot be dissuaded from their view of the world or their view of politics or their view of whatever they're locked in it and nothing, everything that they see goes into that belief system. So if that's the case, I would like not to be locked into a very small belief system, but I would like to say that my core beliefs are positive and that's what I'd like to go looking for in the world rather than ferreting out the negative. The news media does a lot of good in the world, but it also manages to funnel everything that's wrong with it onto our phones every day. That's what they do. So you can either find a way to look at that while still celebrating what's right with the world, or you can get pretty damn depressed with what's going on. If you've never questioned, well, what do I believe? Then the idea of when I believe it, I'll see it doesn't make a lot of sense to you. But if you look at your core beliefs and said, yeah, I believe there's more good in the world than bad in the world, or at least as much, at least we're in a yin-yang symbol, you know, and there's as much good as there is bad. And I would like to stand, if I had to choose where on that yin-yang symbol that I was going to stand, I'm going to stand in the light. I'm not going to stand in the dark. That's what I'm going to go out in the world and look for. Those are the kind of people I want to surround myself with. Those are the kind of experiences. That's the kind of nature I want to be in. Then, because I believe it, that's what I will see. Yeah. And, you know, there was an article just a few days ago in the New York Times by a guy named Nicholas Kristof, I think. And he said, you know, isn't it interesting that the media rushes to report a plane crash, but they never report all the planes that landed? And he said some of that is because back in the days when we were living in caves, bad news could get us eaten by something. So, you know, it's good to know about the bad news because when there's a saber-toothed tiger outside the door of the cave, you kind of want to know about it. But today, we don't deal with that. That's a different, we're in a different reality today and that maybe it is time that we started thinking more about what's right with the world as a way to focus ourselves, train ourselves, sort of frame our way of thinking. You've gone through these almost stages, for lack of a better term, and, and one of the things you talk a lot about now especially is this idea of celebration this idea of truly actively celebrating which i love and you know you were talking about it just a moment ago and somewhere along the way all of these pieces sort of coalesced into a philosophy for lack of a better term kind of the world according to dewitt can you help me understand a little bit more what happened sort of at midlife when you started shifting a little bit and thinking about what what's next where am i going from here Two things. In my early 40s, I was asked to write a, a column for Outdoor Photographer magazine. And I never really thought about it, but I knew it was a, you know, it was a good thing that I should do it. But I had to tell the editor, I said, listen, I'm not a techie photographer. I'm going to run out of tech tips in, in four weeks or four months. And he said, I don't care. Just write whatever you want to write. And so I began writing about how I feel about photography. You know, don't shoot what it looks like. Shoot what it feels like. What does it feel like? The experience is more important than the photograph, that kind of thing. And why did I really go out there? And where did the cameras, when I would fall through the lens into an experience that was great, and then when the 
gear got in front of me and stood between me and the experience, that was not great. And nobody talked about these things, but every photographer had felt them. So I got a huge amount of great feedback, or the editor did. He loved what I was writing and just keep going. Well, the unintended consequence of that was that I was beginning to articulate my philosophy, which most photographers don't do. They're, they're visual people. They take, hey, here's my philosophy. I'll show you my pictures. I was saying, no, I have to write it every month. And so I was really digging into how did I feel about the world? How did I feel about creativity? How did I feel about spirituality? I was having experiences being outside at night, shooting the Milky Way that were exposing my soul, not exposing the, the film plane. And, and what did that mean to me? And I had to write it down. And so this became where I got to articulate and build a philosophy. We, I, I ended up writing 183 columns for the magazine. So there were a lot and people really, really enjoyed them. And I began to see what I felt about the world and how it related to my photography, but more important, how my photography related to my life. And you said earlier that I have never had one moniker. And I've always felt I was a creative entrepreneur. I'm not a photographer. I'm not a lecturer. I'm not a speaker. I'm not a teacher. I just would allow myself to go after things that I really loved. And it worked. It always doesn't. Some people don't. It doesn't fall right, but it did for me. And I began by that time to trust it enough that I left the geographic primarily because they didn't pay well enough. And I had kids now that were going to college and I did a few years. I was quite successful in it as an advertising photographer, but that was more technique and no soul. And I thought, I can't do this till I'm 65. I just can't. I got to do something else. And I thought, what do I want to do? And I looked at what was at that point, the American mode of retirement, which was you lived till you were 65, you retired, you moved to Florida, you played golf for a few years and you died. And I thought, no, I don't want to do that. So I thought, well, what do you want to do? And I, one night I thought, I never want to retire, but I want to semi-retire early. And I thought, wow, that sounds great. How the hell do I do that? Right. And I did two things. I had my own company and I was a, you know, company of one, but I had my own 401k or pension plan at that time, profit sharing plan. And I said, how much do you have to put in that plan so that you won't make every decision around money? Not so that you could retire, but that so that if you got a job that you really didn't want, you could say, I won't do it. And I came up with a figure. And I worked really hard for about the next three years, and I got that amount of money in my pension plan. So now I'm sitting there going, okay, I can say no if I don't like it. I want to semi-retire early. I don't even know what that means. I don't know people who work six months a year. Drug dealers, maybe. I don't know. who. And I was going down the Colorado River with a bunch of students teaching a class in photography, And I'm talking around a campfire one night and one of them said, one of these guys said, you know, the stuff you're saying about creativity would really play in a corporate world. And I go, I don't like corporations. I'm not a, I'm not a team guy. How much do these guys make? These 
speakers? And he said, well, they make between, I don't know, 8,000 and 30,000. I said, a month? He said, no, a speech. I'm going, I'm your guy. Here it is. We're done here. I had no idea that speaking for a living even existed. Seriously. So I made a speech. I took it out on the market. It did really well. And I became a keynote speaker. The part of that that's interesting for our discussion, beside the fact that by 55, I was semi-retired, I did what I wanted to do, is that I was now spreading a philosophy. And it wasn't, it wasn't a, I, you know, I remember I was actually brought into the Covey organization to motivate them, which I thought was pretty damn cool. And, you know, I looked at this big organization that Stephen Covey had built, and I thought, I don't want the DeWitt way. I don't want to have people with T-shirts that say, you know, DeWitt's philosophy on it. I, I'm not that kind of a guy. I'm more of a Johnny Appleseed of like, here, you want it? I'll take it. Here it is, right? But I was able to take the best of me and give it away. I was paid well for it. But I mean, just put it back out in the world, not as a religion, not as something that anybody had to believe or follow me, but as the best that I'd learned in my life. I was lecturing for Hewlett Packard one time, a little division of Hewlett Packard. They worked six months on their vision statement. And I said, well, what was your vision statement? And they said it was to be the best little group in Hewlett Packard in the world, to be the best in the world. And I said, what did you change it to? She said, to be the best for the world. And it just stopped me in my tracks. And I went, that's what I want to do. And that's what I am doing in my lecturing. And when I get up and I start a speech, first thing I say is, you're probably wondering why a photographer's here tonight. I look out and see a bobber dolls, people going, we got no idea why you're lecturing to AT&T, you know? And I go, the only reason I'm here is to share with you the best that I've learned in my life. The unwritten part of that is if you don't like it, if you'd rather be somewhere else, if you think I'm full of beans, leave. I don't care in the nicest possible way. I am going to give you the best that I've got, and I'm not going to worry about whether you like it or not. I don't care about that. I'm just going to put it out there because it underlines what I believe. It allows me to live into my beliefs, and it allows me to be what we'll call here the best for the world. The best that I've got, I'm going to put it out every day. So I got not only to articulate my philosophy, but I got to I got to spread it. And that was pretty cool. That's how I want to live. I want to live in overflow that I can't hold it back. And if I can't, then it's real easy to give it away. If I got to go in and dig it out of me and it's really important and I'm going to give it away, you're damn right. I want something back for it. But if I'm living my life in celebration, if I'm living my life in joy, then the hell I give it away. I, why do I even want to hold on to it? There's more coming up. Am I always there? No. But that's how I want to think of myself as more of an overflowing cup than a great sage that is giving, you know, that is moving pieces around the checkboard and, and, and making a difference. Although I, I really understand. I don't want to degrade that. I know what that means. This just works better for me. Well, and the truth is that, you know, when I get to the end of a teaching day or giving a speech, whatever it may be, 
I want people to thank me, not because I showed up, but I want them to thank me. If they, if they thank me, I want them to thank me because I had impact. Something I said resonated with them, right? That's all I care about. But I think you're onto something really important, and that is that when you look at what you're saying out there, the most important thing there is you have no control over the impact. You're giving of yourself because the truth is you get what you give. You know, you reap what you sow. I don't even know whether it's a cool idea. It's a cool idea to me. That's why I'm sharing it. I don't have to, I don't have to say, yes, this is really a cool idea. I want to be in the position where I go, I can't hold this in. Look what I found today. This is incredible. And when I listen to you and our, in our conversations, that's what I've heard. Let me tell you about dirigibles. You know, you can't keep it inside you. And, and that's the place, that moment where we give it all back that is the real joy to me before it even hits the other person. You know, you could go out and scream about dirigibles in a field and you'd feel great about it. That's, that's where it really gets cool where I am Johnny Appleseed. I'm just going there, throwing the throwing them out there. Hey, look, that one grew. How about that? That's really neat. Yeah. If it grows a tree, great. If a bird eats the seed, great. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. I'm just putting it out there because it's such a cool seed. I got to put it out there. I can't hold it in anymore. That's where I'd like to be all the time. And in fact, the next piece of that tapestry, as you get older, and life clears out a little bit because you're not working so hard to make a living. Your kids are grown. You have more time to do other things. You can keep running at the same pace if you want, but you have more time space between things that you're doing. And what has come up for me in the last bunch of years has been around gratitude. <laughs> you know, to again, to lie out here on my deck at night and look at the Milky Way and think, what had to happen that on this silly, tiny piece of rock in the middle of friggin' nowhere, I get to be conscious for even a split second? I am overwhelmed. I should never be depressed at all in my life when I get in touch with the gift that I've been given. Uh, I'll say that, but not in a religious sense, just I'm here. I'm alive. And I have this privilege to be alive and draw breath for a few years. Let's not even worry about trying to give it back or what I've done. Let's just sit in the gratitude that you're getting to do that. Every breath. There is a thing called the one breath meditation that says everything you need to know about life is in one breath. Well, what's that? You take it all in and you give it all back. You know you're going to do that. You got put on this planet. You're going to have to go back somewhere at the end. It's one long breath. Can you do that every day as easy as breathing? Can you take it all in without guilt, without remorse, with great joy, with your arms around everything? And then can you turn around and just exhale and give it all back? And then bring it in again. I mean, every, every time we take a breath, we do it in full confidence that we're going to be able to breathe back in. Can I live my life that way? Can I give it away without any regard to whether it's received or not? Can I throw those seeds out there and go, yep, there they are. I'm not going to worry about that. I got places down the path to go. So my photographs have become what I call visual prayers. They're 
less about I'm going to make a beautiful picture and I'm going to show it to you and you're going to tell me you like it or I'm going to make a print or something. They're just moments where I see something. Maybe it's a leaf on my driveway and I'm so struck by the beauty of it that instead of just looking at it, I take my iPhone out and I take a picture. And in that moment, I create a little visual prayer. Am I going to put it on the net? Not. Am I going to even keep it to my hard drive? Probably not. It's just that moment. And what's the prayer? The prayer is namaste. The prayer is the spirit in me recognizes the spirit in you. I try and teach people to use their iPhones that way, to walk around and just greet the wonderful things that they see in life and say, thank you. If the only prayer in life we say is thank you, it would be enough. That's a good one, right? So every click is another little visual prayer. It's another thank you for the gratitude that I feel of being on this planet. And I would submit to you that you don't have to be on the far side of life to live this way. It doesn't, it doesn't take the wisdom of the ages to be, to be deliberate in your awareness of everything that surrounds you, does it? No, but as you get older, the signal noise ratio changes. Because you've been thinking about what you've learned and the signal's a little clearer and the noise falls away a little bit. I look at the tapestry of my life. I've known these things forever and I've lived them forever, but I'm living them more now. Right? Because they're, they're crystal clear to me now and I have more time to do things that are not imposed on me. And I, I've lived a life with very few impositions. I, I made it up as I went along and I got to do it. But still, earlier in your life, I watch my kids now who are in their 40s and they're they're running, you know, and oh, it's all good. They got wonderful kids. They got great jobs. They're doing great. But there's not a lot of contemplation going on. Right. They're just full. But yes, we can live at any time. And if celebration becomes a practice rather than a, a speech we heard or a movie we saw or something we read, but it becomes a practice every day then there's a chance that you will do it a lot earlier. Yeah, one of the messages that you deliver kind of around this in the in the Celebrate What's Right with the World film is you, you say that, uh, you know, no forest ever said there is one great picture hidden here and, you know, one of you will find it and the rest of you will be hopeless losers. And you make the point, that's not how it works. I mean, how much film you got? Bring it on. I'll fill them up, right? But but you've got to be you've got to be deliberately aware that that's, that's what's out there for you. That's what's available to you if you let it in. If you let it in. And I've seen very miserable f- people who are, have gobs of money. I've seen very happy people who have no money at all. It's not about money. It's not about status. It's not about sex. It's not about religion. It's about what is the lens that you have on your life? You know, I got to go all over the world all kinds of different people. And what I saw in that was there's a lot more that binds us together than tears us apart, a lot more. And if we wanted to live in harmony, we could do it tomorrow or the next minute. There's nothing that stands in our way except us, except us being afraid. You know, ultimately, there's only one question, one choice, love or fear, that's it. That's what it comes down to. And if you start digging into the things that take us apart, it's all about fear. 
you have that ability to not go there every day. Do I do it? No, I go down the fear path a goodly amount of time and then I'll, I'll but I'll catch myself quicker. And one of the things to sort of bring it to a close here is that, you know, since I've been in my 70s, your college has something on the back of its magazine that it sends you that says, you should give a legacy gift to your college so that you know what. My feeling is, how do you live your legacy every day? How do you put into the world so that people can see it, so that they can say, there's Steve living his legacy. He's living what he wants to be. The corollary to that is that the best piece of art you will ever get to make is your life. That's it. That's the big one. That is the big one. The little ones, the photographs, the paintings, the writing, those are the little ones. What did you create by being on this planet, by being you? I don't want to spend all my time trying to figure out where I'm going to house my photographs rather than living into that legacy every day to living my life as art. Yeah. How do you want to be remembered? How do you want your kids and grandkids to remember you, right? What do you want on that stone they put at the, you know, in your, in your memory, you know, he made a lot of money. He took a lot of pictures. No, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I, I, that's not what I want. Right. But that seems to be the, the sort of direction that a lot of people take. We just get hooked in it. And then we start looking at things maybe making us happier. They, they don't. I mean, they do do a little better. I'd rather have some money than no money. But at some point, you have to start asking yourself, and few people do this, how much is enough, and answering it. I have a house here in Molokai. It's an old Hawaii house. It was built in 1950. In terms of its structural ability, it should be torn down. I love this house. I have no reason to want any more. I don't want to add on to it. I don't want to redo the driveway. I don't, I'm very happy. It is enough. And enough is not one step down from abundance or one step above poverty. Enough is sufficiency. Enough is being able to say it is enough and I am enough. I'm okay with it. And that's a lovely place to work out of where you're not going, oh, if only. No, I get stars at night. I get clouds on the horizon. I have a wonderful wife. I have a great cat. It is enough. <laughs> that is a wonderful place to live. So I'm not trying in, in sharing this tapestry with you. I fear sometimes, because I've lived a pretty cool life, that people will say, I'm tooting my own horn. The only reason I'm doing it is because you asked me to. So I sat down and I said, okay, I'll make it into a line. And I looked back at it and, and it's been a good run. I've had a really good time. And I think I've learned some good things. I certainly have for me, for me. And if I can allow them to resonate so that they bubble up and overflow and I get to share them and I don't worry about where they go or whether people like me for it or don't like me for it. That's a great place for me to live out my my life as art. And if there's anybody listening to this that they can take a few of those things and it makes their life a little more joyful or compassionate or grateful, I'll be thrilled with that. If they all want to make money instead, it's okay with me too, because I'm, I'm living into my joy. My friend DeWitt Jones. 
you know, as I was editing this episode, I found myself writing down the moments in our conversation that really hit me. And to be fair, some of these are messages that have inspired me ever since I saw Celebrate What's Right with the World and learned about the world according to DeWitt Jones. When I went back and looked at my notes, I was surprised to find that there were 10 things on the list. So here they are, DeWitt's top 10, 10 seeds to plant in your mind, a gift from DeWitt Jones. Number one, there is always more than one right answer. Number two, dreaming not only works, it really matters. Number three, never, ever, ever throw away a copy of National Geographic. Number four, celebrate what's right with the world. Don't wallow in what's wrong with it. Number five, take the best of yourself and give it away. Number six, don't be the best in the world, be the best for the world. Number seven, practice gratitude every day. Number eight, every day ask yourself this question, what is the lens that you have on your life? Number nine, be joyful for the abundance that life throws your way. And finally, number ten, know this. The best piece of art you will ever create is your life. Thank you, DeWitt. Sorry, but I just might have to have the t-shirt made. Folks, you can learn about DeWitt's work at DeWittJones.com. You can see videos of his presentations there and examples of his photography. And if you're looking for a powerful keynote speaker for an event, go no further. This is your guy. I leave you with this question, more of a challenge, really. In what way are you taking the best of yourself and giving it away? And in the process, in what way are you being the best for the world rather than trying to be the best in the world? I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, and I just want to take a few additional seconds to thank you for the gift of your time. I started this program because I believe that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. If you've been a listener for a while, you know that the only thing that ties the episodes together is that each one covers a story that deserves to be told, and that each story is something that you should be curious about. I hope you enjoyed the journey we covered in this program, and if you did, please take a couple of minutes to write a brief review wherever you get your podcasts. I cannot tell you how much it means and how valuable it is to have those reviews. From my heart, thank you, and I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.